as I say, seven years ago, I came to uh, Phuket. I came to Thailand thinking I'd be there for a year. I bought a Christmas tree, an artificial Christmas tree. And when January came around, I threw out that Christmas tree because I didn't think I'd be there the following year. But as I say, seven years on. You know, after I threw away the Christmas tree, I had a few more Christmases where I couldn't bring myself to buying another bloody Christmas tree because, you know, next year I'll be gone. Of course. Well, why am I going to buy another one? I'm only going to throw it away again. But I think it was three or four years later, I thought, I need to buy a plastic Christmas tree. Welcome to Brood in Bangkok, the podcast about the people you meet in the city that makes a hard man crumble. Welcome to Brood in Bangkok. It's Karsten, and today I'm here with a published author and media professional, Jody Houghton. Yes, yes, excellent pronunciation. It's almost like we went over how to uh, say my surname before the podcast started. Your own story started where? Well, I'm from um, Lee, L-E-I-G-H, which is a small industrial town in Greater Manchester. It was famous, actually, for the invention of the spinning jenny, which uh-huh. uh, revolutionized the, uh, and the cotton industry during the Industrial Revolution. So, um, yeah, like many industrial towns of the north of England, however, you know, its glory days are very much behind them. Greater days behind them. Is that the reason you got into rap music? <laughs> Like a bit of a British Eminem, you know. Well, this was way before Eminem. Yeah, no, it was just, it was, it was a thing I did in my teenage years. You know, I've always written, I've always wrote. And it was just a way, I suppose, to express myself during those angsty teenage years. Were you at the time thinking that you might actually be a rapper one day? <sighs> it, it's, <laughs> it's hard to take myself back all those years, you know. But no, it was a period from um, I was around 13 to 18, 19 that I was doing it with a couple of friends. Mm-hmm. And we did it, you know, semi-seriously. You know, we, we had the old decks and the microphones. You know, even sat here now with you and I'm cradling a microphone. I'm, I'm just, <laughs> I'm really trying to uh, stop myself busting into a oh, few raps there. Do, you know? Please do, please do. <laughs> no, I'm not gonna do that. <laughs> but no, as I say, during those five, six years, yeah, you know, I was I was very serious with it, you know. It was quite all consuming. I think it's like any any art form or any any type of writing, I suppose. It's um yeah. And you moved on to short stories. Yeah, well basically yeah, as I say, I, I was I mean we are speaking <laughs> a lot about the old rap thing, but yeah, you know, I, I was writing little writing little uh, hip-hop raps, um, you know, in my, in, in my teenage years. And then I went on to university and I very easily transferred, I suppose, the structure and the framework of those raps into poetry. I did a, uh, a writing studies course that was my minor in university. I studied English language and literature with a minor in writing studies. My original plan was to go straight into journalism, which is what I did up till very recently. I wanted to continue writing and uh, become a journalist and effectively write for a living. But uh, my wanderlust proved a little too overpowering, and that won at the end of the day. So I ended up exploring this little world of ours, and the easiest way of doing that with somebody with relatively low funds was to teach English for a living, which is what I did for a number of years. So um, yeah, I went to teach in, in a few countries in Europe, I uh, went to South Korea, taught in South Korea, taught in Japan. 
you know, unfortunately, I'll have to say it was a means to an end, and that end was uh, to travel and to explore the world. You were teaching English in a lot of different places, in Spain, in South Korea. I mean, this image of the English teacher is, there is a certain image of the English teacher in Asia, but, I mean, obviously people are learning English all over the world. So what is the difference between teaching people English in, say, a country like Spain versus a country like South Korea? South Korea, I mean, my experience of teaching English, of all the countries that I've taught in, I think South Korea was the, the country that I left with the, uh, the least amount of positive experiences and positive memories. I think partly because, um, as you say, the, the differences between teaching in different countries can often boil down to you know how much it's marketed as an industry i suppose or how much it's um, led and and shaped by purely a uh, business model and there are you know huge schools that are purely you know huge factories for teaching you know that the school opens at eight and closes at you know nine o'clock in the evening and it's all about cramming as many kids into classes as possible and it's all about trying to you know the children didn't really want to be there because they were being forced into attending these after-school you know lessons while you're working in these educational factories yeah how did that make you feel on the inside not good not good at all and actually um that was why that was one of the reasons why i left the profession as i say i taught for about four to five years and i ended up having a uh, <laughs> quite an emotional exchange with the uh, principal of the school. What happened? Well, I'll tell you what happened. <laughs> I'll tell you what happened, Carsten, while you've asked me. And there's also, there's also a tendency in those kind of environments for the, uh, the teacher to be brought in, the foreign teacher to be brought in, and to kind of... I think in a lot of those schools, the, the foreign teacher plays quite a subservient role, or that they play quite an auxiliary role that the native speaker, which was obviously that the South Korean teachers there, where we're, um, you know, we're more or less there as the foreign face, we're there as the foreign face, and you know, we're expected to, I suppose, toe the line in that regard and you know very much keep to your station and not expect too much or not be too demanding you know there's a very strict curriculum to uh, teach and there's a very particular way of teaching so it's very much about uh, knowing your place you know and you know I was aware of this I was aware of this and then um, you know parents teachers day came up and that was like one event that was one event during the year where the teachers were kind of put under the limelight there you know they were kind of wheeled out and put front and center and it was like oh you know we have these with these uh fabulous teachers here you know these fabulous foreign teachers and they're not overworked or underpaid by the way <laughs> before you even ask you know they're fine you know that and they are smiling believe me no that they're, they're smiles they're just foreign smiles you know you're not too familiar with the foreign smiles there And I basically expressed that to the principal. I said, you know, it, it's at times like this, I suppose you realize our worth, you know, as foreign teachers and that we have these grievances and that we are, you know, able to do so much more than is being asked of us and is being required of us. And we ended up having a little, you know, set to, you know, it wasn't a huge argument, but it was a disagreement. And she was basically shocked, you know, because I decided that this was the time to air my grievances. The time that... At the teacher conference, at that Well, party. before it started, before the teacher conference started, because, as I say, I had to capitalize on this one moment where the foreign teacher 
is uh, lauded. The, the foreign teacher is kind of put under the spotlight there. So I, I basically went and I said, you know, I suppose it's at times like this that you do uh, appreciate us, isn't it? You know, and I said it in a very smiley way and, and I left. And <laughs> yeah, a few weeks later, we ended up having a, a further catch up, a, f- a further follow up uh, conversation about uh, what, had, what was discussed on that day. And she basically said to me, I'd like you to apologize for those comments. And I refused to do so because uh, I stood by them, you know. But, and I ended up uh, leaving. And it was actually one of the reasons why I came to Thailand was because um, I was due to return to the UK to do my master's in journalism a few months later. My girlfriend at the time suggested that I go to Thailand to de-stress, to go and walk on the, uh, the white sand beaches and explore Thailand and kind of relax in, in Thailand, which is what I did. This conflict that you experienced in South Korea, mm. do you believe this is maybe not unique to foreigners, but South Korean society or many Asian societies are very hierarchical and everybody's mm. supposed to toe the party line? Yeah, I think I, absolutely, absolutely. I think it's, uh, I think in, in certain cultures, Thailand too, you know, certain cultures are, are very hierarchical, you know, and South Korea was certainly one of those places. Do you see that as well in Thailand? I do, absolutely, absolutely. I've worked for a few companies here in, in Thailand and, you know, the realization that you can only say as much, well, you can say as much as you want, but it's, <laughs> there's only a certain amount that's going to be listened to or adhered to. And that, you know, that doesn't get any easier, does it? Have you <laughs> determined the line? Yeah, more or less, more or less. You know, you, you look at your wage slip at the end of the month and that usually gives an indication of, of where the line is. Okay. <laughs> what was that discovery process like in Thailand to find out what you can say? Or how you can say it. I mean, there's, there's been a few occasions during my time of uh, being in Thailand that have stayed with me, I suppose, and have, have uh, reminders of, you know, what I should say or, you know, how I should say it. You know, the first one being when I first came to Thailand. So, you know, following on from what I was saying, you know, I left South Korea. I went to uh, Thailand for a couple of months. I went to Phuket. I stayed there for a few months. I stayed on a beach hut in Koh Samui and also in uh, Phuket. It, it was wonderful. It was, it was paradise. You know, I was running on the beaches during the afternoon. I was learning shorthand in the afternoon, and I was also uh, writing in the evening. So it was a um, very idyllic life. Left Thailand, went back to the UK, got my master's in journalism. And then it was all about whether to uh, remain, remain in the UK and kind of look around to see what was available in the industry, in the journalism industry, you know, scrabble around for a few shifts at a national perhaps or try and get on in a regional newspaper while remaining in London, you know, sharing a house, sleeping in very cramped quarters there or, as I say, return to uh, Phuket, which is what I did. Ended up calling this newspaper that I was working for during my two, three months on holiday. Found a newspaper to work for within two months in a, on holiday in Thailand. I did. How did you do that? Like, I mean, I'm sure there's many writers out there who are like, yeah. man, that's amazing. You it just is. go to Thailand and write. How did you do that? I was just in an Irish bar one night. Can you believe that? Can you believe that? A foreigner in Thailand, and he, he was uh, spending his evenings in an Irish bar. But I was in an Irish bar in uh, Phuket, and I was just reading the, uh, an English language magazine, an English language newspaper, fortnightly there, and just flicking through it. And towards the end, there was an advertisement for... Um, freelance writers so I contacted them 
offered my services and ended up working freelance for for a couple of months. You know, it, it kept me in Kalpakai and bottles of sink during my uh, holiday. So that was great. Did they want to see any references? Like, what did you have to do to convince them to let you write? Um, I think you know, I sent a few examples of my my work, a few examples of my writing, and then more or less I was dispatched, and I went to cover a regatta. I think was my first. It was the Phuket regatta. That was the first story I wrote in Thailand. It was about seven years ago. So yeah, as I say, I, I stopped uh, working freelance. I finished my last freelance gig, returned to the UK, did my years in the UK, and then I thought, you know, why not return? Why not contact that uh, magazine again to see if there was any work available, which I did. And they said, sure, you know, come back. And it all which started is what I did. In, and it all started in an Irish all, bar. It all started in an Irish bar. <laughs> It so all started in an Irish bar. You mentioned you had a few memorable moments in Thailand where mm. you kind of noticed, mm. okay, these, this is the framework with right. it, it you can operate. What were those moments like? Okay, well, as I say, the first one was uh, working for that same publication, Return, and after a few months, ended up uh, sitting in the editorial chair. I was the editor after a few months of uh, working for the publication. Quite the career. Yeah, it was quite uh, startling. It was quite surprising. So I was thrust into the editor's chair, literally with four or five months experience, you know. Granted, I'd just finished my, uh, my, my year's study in journalism there back in the UK. And I think that was part of the problem because, <laughs> you know, I was very much operating and I was very much working inspired by all these ideas and these theories, you know, from my course there. So I had certain expectations and certain... Um, so what happened? Well, what happened was, I suppose it was just... <laughs> I basically proceeded to alienate almost the entire office within a few weeks. Ties or ties? You know, no, they were all ties. All ties. I, I was the only foreigner in the company. What do you think was the main reason that happened? I think it was just uh, how I was conducting myself, I suppose, or how I was communicating with them. Do you remember any specific instance that stays with you? Just particular looks and particular glances, you know? <laughs> Rather than what was actually articulated. And that's another thing, you know, I think that's another huge difference when it comes to um, the way that foreigners and Thais like to uh, work. So, If you would put mm. yourself in the head of your co-workers at the time, mm. what do you think were they thinking about you? That I was too demanding, perhaps that I was too demanding, that I was too serious, you know, and I, I expected too much of them. And perhaps my requests could have been delivered with a little bit more sweetness and with a, a few more smiles there, you know? And I think that's what you realize after a few years of living in Thailand, in, whether that's Phuket or Bangkok or, you know, Pechaburi. It's that, um, the, the way that you communicate, I mean, this stands up all around the world, doesn't it? But I think especially in, in Thailand, you know, there is a sabai sabai approach to many things. And as long as, you know, you should try and communicate and you should try and conduct yourself with a little bit of uh, joy de vivre and uh, sabai sabai. So looking back now, would yeah. you agree with them? That's a good question. To an extent, I suppose, yes. To an extent, yeah. But as I say, from my defense, from seven years ago, Jody, you know, I'd, I'd more or less just arrived and I had these ideas and, I, you know, I'd, I'd identified these problems and, uh, you know, possible solutions and I was met with huge resistance to try and, um, you know, solve these problems. So... Yeah, that was the first problem, I suppose, where I, where I bumped up against the, the very rigid framework of uh, the Thai hierarchical structure. Were you the boss at the time? Yes. So it was like 
in a way in South Korea you experience mm. the hierarchy issues as a subordinate mm. and here you experience it as a boss. Yeah, that's right. And it's interesting because it seems from both, like regardless if locals are your managers mm. or your subordinates, it seems it's a very demanding situation to deal with because there's a, it's difficult either way. Mm. Well, you're essentially operating and you're essentially living and working in a, in, in a foreign culture, aren't you? And woe betide anybody who forgets that you're very much working in Thailand or South Korea or, or America. So you need to be aware of how things are done, you know, and, you know, what, what is going to get you into trouble and what is the easiest way of achieving your goals, you know? You also did some teaching in Thailand. You taught air hostesses. I did. I did. That sounds, that might sound like the perfect job to some people. I'm sure it would. I'm sure it would. Well, I, I, Was it? I, I have to clarify. It's, I, I taught uh, aspiring air hostesses. I taught aspiring air hostesses. Uh, I'm not too sure whether you're familiar or not, but you know the role, the job of air hostess or cabin crew, which is the politically correct uh, term for that position, is a hugely glamorous one in Thailand. It's a hugely glamorous one. Obviously, um, comparatively speaking, they're able to earn huge salary. They're able to explore the world. So, yeah, you know, it's, there's a huge demand. There's a huge demand for uh, cabin crew. There's a huge demand for Thai cabin crew, you know, because of, you know, the very gentle and the very welcoming and hospitable nature of many of uh, Thai people and Thai character. And there's also, you know, a, a huge competition. There's a huge competition for those uh, roles. In which way was it? different or maybe the same mm. working in training aspiring mm -hmm. cabin crew yeah. versus mm. training aspiring university or students or yeah isn't there like a similar commercial it's thought just behind it i mean the, i think the differences between whether you're teaching children or whether you're teaching sullen teenagers or whether you're teaching uh, you know professionals or whether you're teaching somebody who has a very clear goal in mind The difference, I think, lies in the different level of uh, willingness and the, the different levels of drive and the different desire to actually be in that small room, you know, once or twice or three times every week, you know. So the cabin crew, uh, the aspiring cabin crew, they were very driven, they were very motivated and they wanted this very glamorous job. So, you know, so they wanted to learn. Was that surprising to you when you first started that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, part of me, I mean, we're familiar, aren't we? That it, it's a hard job. It's a very demanding job to be cabin crew. You know, you have to deal with assholes. Can I say assholes? Can, yeah, totally. Okay, yeah. Great. Yeah, you have to deal with very difficult customers, don't you? You know, I used to work for Lufthansa and Lufthansa, well, had a remark in the reservation where you could actually enter mm. a code name for when a passenger was um, okay. not nice. Yeah. And it was a code word. Yeah. And someone told some passenger who found out about it. Oh, God. And that became a big disaster. So from there on, it was banned to yeah. uh, include that. But yeah, did that give you a different light on Thai culture to see like mm. maybe, you know, as you say, many people perceive Thai culture is more, you know, easygoing. Mm. And then you go into an actual field where mm. it's competitive sure. and people are really driven. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it's fierce. The competition is absolutely fierce. I mean, the school that I work for is just one of many that exist in Bangkok. 
and around Thailand. And yeah, they're absolutely driven. That I mean, they turn up for these uh, castings. I think they're called castings slash interviews. You know, that are typically held at, at ballrooms in hotels, and there's there's hundreds and even thousands of uh, p- predominantly young women that turn up at like four or five o'clock in the morning. You know full makeup on and they're staying there for 12 14 hours a day and yeah they're absolutely driven and they're absolutely you know that there's a burning dream and there's a burning uh, hope for them to not only escape i suppose we use the word escape quite loosely in uh everyday parlance but they do want to escape i suppose and they do want to explore i suppose explore is a more accurate word for it do you remember any particular student that stayed in your mind? <laughs> there is one. There was one particular student who turned up. He was a he, you know, because as I say, it's predominantly women, but you do get the odd um, chap who'd like to be a, a flight attendant or a cabin crew. Because as I say, hugely glamorous job. They are called angels out here. You know, the, the, a byword for a cabin crew is an angel. You know, I suppose because they fly in the sky. I'm not too sure. But this one student perhaps... It wouldn't be all that accurate to describe him as an angel, because I, I remember he, he turned. He, you know, he was quite a um, an interesting chap. He turned up in in one of the lessons, you know, drinking uh, Smirnoff. Yeah, in, in like a Bacardi. It was like a Bacardi Breezer or something. Yeah, it, it was some kind of alcoholic drink. There's only so much, uh, I suppose, discipline you can exert because they're paying to be there. You know, so if if they want to be late, they can be late. If, so that that was I had to handle that scenario quite creatively how did you handle it you know so what i said to him was you know next week or in the next lesson please you know bring in a water bottle you know and he said oh no it's water that's in this bottle in this bacardi breezer bottle and i said okay that's fine but uh next lesson you know don't bring that bottle in bring a water bottle in please and that was and that was fine i'd acknowledged it but at the same time i hadn't embarrassed him or kind of place neon around the action which i think he was kind of hoping for how long did you teach cabin crew for oh, i taught in uh, i taught this was like a part-time job that i held while i was uh, working for a, a newspaper i taught for about a year and a half what made you move on from that well i, I ended up leaving the the school because i mean i've been in thailand for seven years and counting seven years and counting and yeah you know a few months ago i got the seven year itch You know, and uh, I thought about returning to the UK, returning to my hometown, well, not necessarily my hometown, but returning somewhere in England or Wales, which is where my parents have, you know, I suppose you can say emigrated to, they've moved to. And so I ended up quitting my job at the newspaper, quitting my job at the school, and I went back to the uh, UK. But as as you know, because you're sat opposite me in a in a room in, uh, where are we? We're in Ratchada. Yes. In Ratchada. Best neighborhood ever. (laughs) It's an interesting neighborhood. Ended up uh, returning. Ended up returning after just a a couple of weeks. And I was offered a a job I couldn't really... What kind of expectations did you hold in your head when you moved back to the UK? I mean, I know from people who get fed up with Bangkok, it's usually they don't like the weather, they don't like the commute, the traffic. And they hold certain expectations, maybe certain memories that you hope to return to? What was it like? What did you have in your head when you were in Bangkok and what happened to those images? Well, I, you know, I decided to return first and foremost to attend my brother's wedding. So I, you know, and I, I did that. I didn't really have any expectations 
of what the UK was going to be like. Well, very quiet, isn't it? It's, you know, I think anywhere's quiet after living in Bangkok for a while. So as I say, the, the main reason for my leaving wasn't necessarily because I'd um, become fed up with Bangkok particularly, but I just decided to um, go back home, spend some time with my family and take stock, really. As, as I say, I've left the journalism industry, you know, I've left and I've sidestepped into PR. So, I, you know, there was a bunch of things that coincided at the same time. Before that, you worked as a journalist. Yeah. Now you're a public relations specialist. <laughs> yes, I am, yes. Were you hired for your writing or for your contacts? Probably a little bit of both, isn't it? Probably a little bit of both. You know, a lot of people, a lot of ex-journalists end up sidestepping into the PR world. I think it's a natural progression. I think there are various skills that can be transferable over to the industry. But um, yeah, you know, I know a lot of people in Bangkok as well and, and Phuket, you know. It was, uh, my, my contact list certainly expanded when I was writing my book, you know, A Geek in Thailand. Yeah, so I think it was a little bit of both. It was a little bit of both. What do your journalist friends think about your move? Are they <laughs> supportive? Are they jealous? Are they uh, encouraging? What's their reaction? <laughs> it differs, doesn't it? It differs. I think, you know, a word that is jumping up and down in my mind right now is inevitable. I think there's inevitability. There's an inevitability about uh, moving into PR, I think. What makes it so inevitable? In <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That thing. That thing. What makes it so inevitable is, I think, man, what do you mean? I mean, for me, I suppose it was inevitable because I, we were speaking before the, the mics were turned on there. I think the difference between journalism and PR over the years has narrowed, you know, and, you know, whereas once it was very much seen as the light and the dark side. I think with the shrinking of the industry, the shrinking of the journalism industry, you know, what with so many journalists and so many writers being so dependent on uh, content outside of the uh, newspaper, outside of the organization, i.e. from agencies or from PR departments and things like that, that I think it's, you know, you peer over into the garden there and you know it's always greener, but uh, you're realizing that, you know, These gardens are more or less the same, right? But let's say you're, you're getting so many more sun rays in that garden than you are in the garden you're currently sitting in, you know? So I think it was inevitable for me to hop over that fence. Sun rays is an amazing euphemism. <laughs> sun rays, yeah. So the sun shines a lot. Yeah. What would journalism student Jody think mm. about <laughs> PR yeah. Jody? Well, you know. <laughs> I mean, I always remember... When, as I say, I, I went to, I went, did my master's in journalism and one speaker, we used to have a, a weekly speaker that came in that was supposed to be from the industry, <laughs> was supposed to be from the industry and he'd come in and he'd share his experiences and some anecdotes about working for the newspapers or blah, 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 you know, he's supposed to be sharing some inspiring, you know, stories that they'd gathered, you know, working and accruing so much experience in the industry. And this one chap, I remember he came in. And just to give you a little bit of color, you know, he came in and he had a, he was the kind of chap who had a mobile phone holstered. He had a mobile phone on, on his waist. Now, I'm not saying that people who do that, you know. <laughs> But it was the defining thing you remember. That stuck with me, you know, that stuck <laughs> with me. That was the first thing, you know, he strolled in there and he, he kind of stood with his legs apart, legs akimbo like uh, John Wayne there. And as I say, the, the, the phone on the holster. 
And he said, right, I'm in PR. I work in PR, yeah? Journalism's good for the first five or six years of your career, but then get out as soon as you can, like me, I'm in PR, it's great. <laughs> I just, you know, I remember looking around and thinking, you know, everybody here is doing, is completing this course. You know, everybody here wants to be a journalist. Everybody here has the hopes and dreams that they, you know, want to write uh, newsworthy content, you know, and here's this chap, you know, standing there and saying, you know, journalism, just get in and get out, you know. And plus, he had a mobile phone on his, on his waist, you know. Strategic mistake. Yeah, so as I say, you know, back in those days, it was only like eight years ago or something, what would Jody then think? I think he'd understand. I think he'd understand. <laughs> he'd understand. So Jody, the writer, yeah. wrote a book. Yes, uh, I've, I've written uh, A Geek in Thailand, which is the fourth in the A Geek In series. Uh, I didn't write the uh, previous three, but it's a, it's a series that uh, has been brought out by Tuttle Publishing. Uh, it follows on the strength of A Geek in Japan, A Geek in uh, Korea. You know, I did the A Geek in Thailand uh, version, and I believe uh, later this year, a Geek in China is going to be released. You know, these are books. These are books that have been written by, you know, expats that have been living in the country, the countries, for a certain number of years, and they have experience and opportunities. And, you know, they're, they're kind of lighthearted overviews of the culture and a little exploration. And, yeah. You wrote a bit about politics as well in that book. Yeah. What was that like? I mean, you are a foreigner covering mm. Thailand, Thailand that is, you know, very politically divided, that has a lot of strong feelings about politics mm. and also very strict laws about what you can say and what you can't say. How did you feel about writing that? I thought it was, uh, it, it was necessary to write about it, you know, because, um, I mean, I build the book as it is an alternative guide, you know, it's, it's a travel guide, but it's also, um, you know, memoirs, I suppose. It's chronicling my experience of, of living in Thailand. And, you know, hopefully it's for expats as well as uh, tourists who visit Thailand. And I think it can be quite a head-scratching head uh, environment and a head-scratching situation, Thai politics. You know, so I, I thought it was absolutely imperative that I attempted to try and <laughs> give an overview, you know, in, in four pages with five or six full color photos to a company i think there's also the a part of it is that if you are someone who already lives in bangkok or mm. lives in thailand i think you can read a lot between the lines mm. of what you are writing there it's yeah. not just a superficial picture so i really like that part thank you why did you write it why did you write the book it was an opportunity that just kind of fell into my lap i suppose basically my name was put forward to the publisher by a uh, an ex-employer of mine and that's when I started communicating with the, the publisher there and I, I shared my ideas. And How did that come about? The publisher mm. contacted your employer and right. asked for a writer? My employer, which is Simon Ostheimer, he was my editor at, the, uh, at a newspaper in Phuket, and they contacted him and asked if he'd be interested in writing A Geek in Thailand. At that time, I think his wife had just given birth, plus he'd only been in Thailand for a year or so. So, you know, he thought of me and he suggested me to the publisher and that's how it came about, really. And I'm eternally grateful. What advice mm. would you have for prospective writers? I mean, a lot of 
people who are aspiring writers are wondering how they could go about getting published. Yeah. What are some specific steps you think they could take to increase the chances of that happening? There needs to be commercial viability in anything you write. So there needs to be an audience that are willing to, to pay and actually buy your product, whatever that product is. So I suppose that needs to be in the back of your mind. You also need to produce something. You need to create something that perhaps is unique or at least is slightly different to what's available on the market in order for people to you know, want to buy it. What about the hands-on steps? Like, yeah. obviously, you can't decide who your past employer was. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so what are, like, should people start writing for magazines? Should they... What's something? Just get yourself out there, I suppose, yeah. Any kind of hints and tips I would have. I mean, um, you've got to enjoy what you do, haven't you? you know, I mean, if so if you're a writer and you enjoy writing, then of course write, but you've got to be able to share that in some way, haven't you? Whether that's all about creating your own platform or you know, whether that's about contacting the different publications, magazines, newspapers, radio stations or whatever there is in order to um, you know get it published to get it shared to to get your name to get your content to get your you know to get you out there you just got to seize every opportunity i suppose you really stress the commercial viability right. of the product mm. also sounds like there is maybe well something that is not as commercially viable or maybe not as commercially beneficial mm. to write Were there like things you wanted to put in the book, but yes. for commercial reasons you didn't? Yes, 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 yes. There are certain things that I actually wrote and submitted, and then it was decided, you know, that the publisher decided that perhaps it wasn't best to include such musings in a book that was essentially, you know, a light-hearted overview of uh, the beautiful country and culture of Thailand. What was that conversation with the publisher like? So it was a conversation, it, or it was an exchange of emails that I, was, I wasn't exactly expecting, but I could understand when it, when it came and when it popped into my inbox, you know, and it was, it was fine. It was, okay, that's fine. You're like, yeah, I saw that one coming. Yeah, you know. What was the section you had to remove? There was a few little sections that I had in there. I mean, who knows? I mean, hopefully if it goes for a second print run, I may try and um, slide it in again. But it was an exploration of, you know, some of Thailand's darker industries, and things like that. What are some insights you have about Thailand's darker industries that you're keen to share? Well, well you'll have to buy a Geek in Thailand part two to find out. <laughs> <laughs> no, but as I, you know, as I say, in general, the aspects and the, the uh, sections that I wanted to include didn't particularly paint Thailand in a, an altogether positive light. And it was basically the realization that certain books that do contain those elements are not all that likely to be promoted or, you know, even featured in certain bookstores, you know? So it's a balance. You've got to strike. So if you have the red light district in your book, it's not going to be promoted? I mean, of course, it's hard to... You have to mention the existence of the red light district and said industry when you're talking about Thailand. And that was, that was one of the things that I wanted to... that I did write about, you know, was how much this industry... Because at the end of the day, it is an industry. But, um, you know, that was so it was an exploration of how much that industry, you know, generated in Thailand and, you know, the, the historical background of prostitution and, you know, the differences between, I suppose, the foreigner marketed, targeted prostitution and the more Thai side of uh, the industry. 
And as I say, little things like that didn't really slide through. Do you think that was mainly an issue in selling the book within Thailand or abroad? Not too sure. As I say, as, as soon as I received that email, I, I was... I, I'd probably, you know, if I was to hazard a guess, probably in Thailand. Probably in Thailand, yeah. You wrote a book about Thailand. Is it being bought in Thailand or is it being bought by people who mm. are more curious about Thailand? Like, what's the audience there? When I got this project, when I got the green light, was I, I wanted to write I wanted to write a book and I wanted to fill what I saw as a gap in the market. And from what I saw, you know, eight, nine years ago from, you know, the generic Lonely Planet-esque guide, you know, to books that were written by disgruntled, scorned Farang men, you know, about their exploits and how they've been scammed and had all these horrible experiences with Thai women. And there was nothing really in the middle. There was nothing that was aimed at, uh, you know, educating, at providing information for the foreigners who came here for like two, three weeks, you know, and wa wanted to genuinely learn about, you know, who their driver was, you know, who the girl behind the hotel desk was, you know, you know, what was her life like, you know, what kind of music did she like, what kind of movies did the taxi driver like, you know, um, so that's what I attempted to do, really. If What kind of book would you have written yeah. if there would have been no commercial fact limitation to yeah. it at all? What is the book you would write if selling it mm. wouldn't be the problem? <laughs> I'm quite, you know, I'm, I'm very happy with the, the product. There would be a few minor alterations. I mean, I think the old temples, the whole temples section and the, uh, you know, the beaches and things like that have been done to death. There's all manner of places you can go to find out how wonderful Wat Arun is and, you know, the different temples in Bangkok and when they were built and things like that. But, um, you know, the slimming down of some sections and the adding of a few more, there's not much that I'd change because, as I say, at the end of the day, it is a lighthearted overview of the culture of, of Thailand. It's a positive look at the country and culture and it's a positive book because, as I say, I've been here seven years. I, I love living here. It's a wonderful culture, it's a wonderful country, and I, I suppose I just wanted to share some of the things and some of the um, tidbits I'd accrued, I'd, I'd picked up over the years. Jody, yes. how old are you? I'm 36 now. Okay, where do you see 46-year-old Jody? Yeah, I'm not too sure, I'm not too sure. I don't know if I'll still be um, in Bangkok, I'm not too sure whether the brewing process will have uh, finally reached maturation there. But, you know, who's to know? As I say, seven years ago, I came to uh, Phuket. I came to Thailand thinking I'd be there for a year. I bought a Christmas tree, an artificial Christmas tree. And when January came around, I threw out that Christmas tree because I didn't think I'd be there the following year. But as I say, seven years on. You know, after I threw away the Christmas tree, I had a few more Christmases where I couldn't bring myself to buy in another bloody Christmas tree because, you know, next year I'll be gone. Of course. Well, why am I going to buy another one? I'm only going to throw it away again. But I think it was three or four years later, I thought, I need to buy a plastic Christmas tree. Finally settled. <laughs> well, I've finally bought a plastic Christmas tree. Cool. Well, then I hope you will have many more Christmases at the plastic Christmas tree. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure having you here today. Thank you, Kirsten. And I wish you all the best for your endeavors in the PR world and the writing world. Thank you very much. There's one thing I wanted to tell you. The reason why I'm running Brood in Bangkok 
is because I believe in everybody you meet on the streets of Bangkok, there is an amazing story. And I want to bring these stories to a broader audience. And you can actually help me with that. If you can send a link to this episode, which you'll find at brutinbangkok.com, to just one person. You don't have to share it on your Facebook or tweet it out. Just send this link to one person who you think will really enjoy listening to this episode. That would be already a big help. Producing one of these podcasts takes about a whole day. While the final episode is only about 45 minutes, usually I have to record interviews for a lot longer to get the material. And between editing and preparing the entire episode, it usually takes about a whole day. And seeing more people actually listening to this would be a great reward. It'll also allow me to spend more time on this in the future. So if you can take a few seconds out of your day to send a link to this episode to just one more person, that would be amazing. Thank you very much. And that's it from Brood in Bangkok for this episode. If you like the show, please go to iTunes and leave it a five-star rating. If you would like to find out more about the show, you can go to broodinbangkok.com and the website will redirect you to more information about the podcast, show notes, and more background information about our guests and anything else you want to know about the show or me. Until next time.